Book Two, Chapter Five of A Voyage Towards the South Pole and Round the World, Volume One by James Cook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Cole. Chapter Five: Transactions at Queen Charlotte Sound, with an account of the inhabitants being cannibals, and various other incidents. Departure from the Sound, and our endeavours to find the adventure, and some description of the coast. 1773 November The first thing we did after mooring the ship was to unbend all the sails, there not being one but what wanted repair. Indeed, both our sails and rigging had sustained much damage in beating off the strait's mouth. We had no sooner anchored than we were visited by the natives, several of whom I remember to have seen when I was here in the endeavour, particularly an old man named Gubaya. In the afternoon I gave orders for all the empty water-casks to be landed, in order to be repaired, cleaned and filled, tents to be set up for the sailmakers, coopers and others whose business made it necessary for them to be on shore. The next day we began to cork the ship's sides and decks, to overhaul her rigging, repair the sails, cut wood for fuel, and set up the smith's forge to repair the ironwork, all of which were absolutely necessary. We also made some hauls with the seine, but caught no fish, which deficiency the natives in some measure made up, by bringing us a good quantity, and exchanging them for pieces of Otaheitan cloth, etc. On the fifth, the most part of our bread being in casks, I ordered some to be opened, when, to our mortification, we found a good deal of it damaged. To repair this loss in the best manner we could, all the casks were opened, the bread was picked, and the copper oven set up, to bake such parcels of it as, by that means, could be recovered. Sometime this morning the natives stole, out of one of the tents, a bag of clothes belonging to one of the seamen. As soon as I was informed of it, I went to them in an adjoining cove, demanded the clothes again, and, after some time spent in friendly application, recovered them. Since we were among thieves, and had come off so well, I was not sorry for what had happened, as it taught our people to keep a better lookout for the future. With these people I saw the youngest of the two sows Captain Furneaux had put on shore in Cannibal Cove when we were last here. It was lame of one of its hind legs, otherwise in good case and very tame. If we understood these people right, the boar and other sow were also taken away and separated, but not killed. We were likewise told that the two goats I had put on shore up the sound had been killed by that old rascal Gobiah. Thus all our endeavours to stock this country with useful animals were likely to be frustrated by the very people we meant to serve. Our gardens had fared somewhat better. Everything in them, except the potatoes, they had left entirely to nature, who had acted her part so well, 
that we found most articles in a flourishing state, a proof that the winter must have been mild. The potatoes had most of them been dug up. Some, however, still remained, and were growing, though I think it probable that they will never be got out of the ground. Next morning I sent over to the cove where the natives reside to haul the seine, and took with me a boar and a young sow, two cocks and two hens, we had brought from the isles. These I gave to the natives, being persuaded they would take proper care of them, by their keeping Captain Furneaux's sow near five months, for I am to suppose it was caught soon after we sailed. We had no better success with the Seine than before. Nevertheless we did not return on board quite empty, having purchased a large quantity from the natives. When we were upon this traffic, they showed a great inclination to pick my pockets, and to take away the fish with one hand, which they had just given me with the other. This evil one of the chiefs undertook to remove, and with fury in his eyes made a show of keeping the people at a proper distance. I applauded his conduct, but at the same time kept so good a lookout as to detect him in picking my pocket of a handkerchief which I suffered him to put in his bosom, before I seemed to know anything of the matter, and then told him what I had lost. He seemed quite ignorant and innocent, till I took it from him, and then he put it off with a laugh, acting his part with so much address, that it was hardly possible for me to be angry with him, so that we remained good friends, and he accompanied me on board to dinner. About that time we were visited by several strangers, in four or five canoes, who brought with them fish and other articles, which they exchanged for cloth, etc. These newcomers took up their quarters in a cove near us, but very early the next morning moved off with six of our small water-casks, and with them all the people we found here on our arrival. The precipitate retreat of these last we supposed was owing to the theft the others had committed. They left behind them some of their dogs, and the boar I had given them the day before, which I now took back again, as I had not another. Our casks were the least loss we felt by these people leaving us. While they remained we were generally well supplied with fish at a small expense. We had fair weather, with a wind at north-east on the ninth which gave us some hopes of seeing the adventure, but these hopes vanished in the afternoon, when the wind shifted to the westward. The next morning our friends the natives returned again, and brought with them a quantity of fish, which they exchanged for two hatchets. Fair weather on the twelfth enabled us to finish picking, airing, and baking our biscuit, four thousand two hundred and ninety-two pounds of which we found totally unfit to eat, and about three thousand pounds more could only be eaten by people in our situation. On the thirteenth, clear and pleasant weather, early in the morning the natives brought us a quantity of fish, which they exchanged as usual. But their greatest branch of trade was the green talc or stone, called by them Ponamu, a thing of no great value. Nevertheless it was so much sought after by our people, that there was hardly a thing they would not give for a piece of it. 
the fifteenth being a pleasant morning a party of us went over to the east bay and climbed one of the hills which overlooked the eastern part of the strait in order to look for the adventure we had a fatiguing walk to little purpose for when we came to the summit we found the eastern horizon so foggy that we could not see above two miles mr forster who was one of the party profited by this excursion in collecting some new plants i now began to despair of seeing the adventure any more but was totally at a loss to conceive what was become of her till now i thought she had put into some port in the strait when the wind came to north-west the day we anchored in the cove and waited to complete her water this conjecture was reasonable enough at first but it was now hardly probable that she could be twelve days in our neighbourhood without our either hearing or seeing something of her the hill we now mounted is the same that i was upon in seventeen seventy when i had the second view of the strait we then built a tower with the stones we found there which we now saw had been levelled to the ground no doubt by the natives with a view of finding something hid in it when we returned from the hill we found a number of them collected round our boat after some exchanges and making them some presents we re-embarked in order to return on board and in our way visited others of the inhabitants by whom we were kindly received our friends the natives employed themselves on the seventeenth in fishing in our neighbourhood and as fast as they caught the fish came and disposed of them to us insomuch that we had more than we could make use of from this day to the twenty-second nothing remarkable happened and we were occupied in getting everything in readiness to put to sea being resolved to wait no longer than the assigned time for the adventure the winds were between the south and west stormy with rain till the twenty-third when the weather became settled clear and pleasant very early in the morning we were visited by a number of the natives in four or five canoes very few of whom we had seen before they brought with them various articles curiosities which they exchanged for otaheitan cloth etc at first the exchanges were very much in our favour till an old man who was no stranger to us came and assisted his countrymen with his advice which in a moment turned the trade of over a thousand per cent against us after these people were gone i took four hogs that is three sows and one boar two cocks and two hens which i landed in the bottom of the west bay carrying them a little way into the woods where we left them with as much food as would serve them ten or twelve days this was done with a view of keeping them in the woods lest they should come down to the shore in search of food and be discovered by the natives which however seemed not probable as this place had never been frequented by them nor were any traces of them to be seen near it we also left some cocks and hens in the woods in ship cove but these will have a chance of falling into the hands of the natives whose wandering way of life will hinder them from breeding even suppose they should be taken proper care of indeed they took rather too much care of those which i had already given them by keeping them continually confined for fear of losing them in the woods 
The sow pig we had not seen since the day they had her from me, but we were now told she was still living, as also the old boar and sow given them by Captain Furneaux, so that there is reason to hope they may succeed. It will be unfortunate, indeed, if every method I have taken to provide this country with useful animals should be frustrated. We were likewise told that the two goats were still alive and running about, but I gave more credit to the first story than this. I should have replaced them by leaving behind the only two I had left, but had the misfortune to lose the ram soon after our arrival here, in a manner we could hardly account for. They were both put ashore at the tents, where they seemed to thrive very well. At last the ram was taken with fits bordering on madness. We were at a loss to tell whether it was occasioned by anything he had eaten, or by being stung with nettles, which were in plenty about the place, but supposed it to be the latter, and therefore did not take the care of him we ought to have done. One night, while he was lying by the sentinel, he was seized with one of these fits and ran headlong into the sea, but soon came out again and seemed quite easy. Presently after he was seized with another fit, and ran along the beach with the she-goat after him. Some time after she returned, but the other was never seen more. Diligent search was made for him in the woods to no purpose. We therefore supposed he had run into the sea a second time, and had been drowned. After this accident it would have been in vain to leave the she-goat, as she was not with Kid, having kidded but a few days before we arrived, and the kids dead. Thus the reader will see how every method I have taken to stock this country with sheep and goats has proved ineffectual. When I returned on board in the evening I found our good friends the natives had brought us a large supply of fish. Some of the officers visiting them at their habitations saw, among them, some human thigh-bones from which the flesh had been but lately picked. This, and other circumstances, led us to believe that the people whom we took for strangers this morning were of the same tribe, that they had been out on some war expedition, and that those things they sold us were the spoils of their enemies. Indeed, we had some information of this sort the day before, for a number of women and children came off to us in a canoe, from whom we learnt that a party of men were then out, for whose safety they were under some apprehension. But this report found little credit with us, as we soon after saw some canoes come in from fishing, which we judged to be them. Having now got the ship in a condition for sea, and to encounter the southern latitudes, I ordered the tents to be struck, and everything to be got on board. The boatswain, with a party of men, being in the woods cutting broom, some of them found a private hut of the natives, in which was deposited most of the treasure they had received from us, as well as other articles of their own. It is very probable some were set to watch this hut, as, soon after it was discovered, they came and took all away. But missing some things, they told our people they had stolen them, and in the evening came and made their complaint to me, pitching upon one of the party as the person who had committed the theft. 
having ordered this man to be punished before them they went away seemingly satisfied although they did not recover any of the things they had lost nor could i by any means find out what had become of them though nothing was more certain than that something had been stolen by some of the party if not by the very man the natives had pitched upon it was ever a maxim with me to punish the least crimes any of my people committed against these uncivilized nations their robbing us with impunity is by no means a sufficient reason why we should treat them in the same manner a conduct we see they themselves cannot justify they found themselves injured and sought for redress in a legal way the best method in my opinion to preserve a good understanding with such people is first by showing them the use of firearms to convince them of the superiority they give you over them and then to be always upon your guard when once they are sensible of these things a regard for their own safety will deter them from disturbing you or from being unanimous in forming any plan to attack you and strict honesty and gentle treatment on your part will make it their interest not to do so calm or light airs from the north all day on the twenty-third hindered us from putting to sea as intended in the afternoon some of the officers went on shore to amuse themselves among the natives where they saw the head and bowels of a youth who had lately been killed lying on the beach and the heart stuck on a forked stick which was fixed to the head of one of the largest canoes one of the gentlemen bought the head and brought it on board where a piece of the flesh was broiled and eaten by one of the natives before all the officers and most of the men i was on shore at this time but soon after returning on board was informed of the above circumstances and found the quarter-deck crowded with the natives and the mangled head or rather part of it for the under jaw and lip were wanting lying on the taffrail the skull had been broken on the left side just above the temples and the remains of the face had all the appearance of a youth under twenty the sight of the head and the relation of the above circumstances struck me with horror and filled my mind with indignation against these cannibals curiosity however got the better of my indignation especially when i considered that it would avail but little and being desirous of becoming an eye-witness of a fact which many doubted i ordered a piece of the flesh to be broiled and brought to the quarter-deck where one of these cannibals ate it with surprising avidity this had such an effect on some of our people as to make them sick oedee who came on board with me was so affected with the sight as to become perfectly motionless and seemed as if metamorphosed into the statue of horror it is utterly impossible for art to describe that passion with half the force that it appeared in his countenance when roused from this state by some of us he burst into tears continued to weep and scold by turns told them they were vile men and that he neither was nor would be any longer their friend he even would not suffer them to touch him he used the same language to one of the gentlemen who cut off the flesh 
and refused to accept or even touch the knife with which it was done. Such was Odidi's indignation against the vile custom, and worthy of imitation by every rational being. I was not able to find out the reason for their undertaking this expedition. All I could understand for certain was that they went from hence into Admiralty Bay, the next inlet to the west, and there fought with their enemies, many of whom they killed. They counted to me fifty, a number which exceeded probability, as they were not more if so many themselves. I think I understood them clearly, that this youth was killed there, and not brought away prisoner, and afterwards killed. Nor could I learn that they had brought away any more than this one, which increased the improbability of their having killed so many. We had also reason to think that they did not come off without loss, for a young woman was seen, more than once, to cut herself, as is the custom when they lose a friend or relation. That the New Zealanders are cannibals can now no longer be doubted. The account given of this in my former voyage, being partly founded on circumstances, was, as I afterwards understood, discredited by many persons. Few consider what a savage man is in his natural state, and even after he is in some degree civilized. The New Zealanders are certainly in some state of civilization. Their behaviour to us was manly and mild, showing on all occasions a readiness to oblige. They have some arts among them which they execute with great judgment and unwearied patience. They are far less addicted to thieving than the other islanders of the South Sea, and I believe those in the same tribe, or such as are at peace one with another, are strictly honest among themselves. This custom of eating their enemies slain in battle, for I firmly believe they eat the flesh of no others, has undoubtedly been handed down to them from the earliest times, and we know it is not an easy manner to wean a nation from their ancient customs, let them be ever so inhuman and savage, especially if that nation has no manner of connection or commerce with strangers. For it is by this that the greatest part of the human race has been civilized, an advantage which the New Zealanders, from their situation, never had. An intercourse with foreigners would reform their manners and polish their savage minds. Or, were they more united under a settled form of government, they would have fewer enemies, consequently this custom would be less in use and might in time be in a manner forgotten. At present they have but little idea of treating others as themselves would wish to be treated, but treat them as they expect to be treated. If I remember right, one of the arguments they made use of to Topia, who frequently expostulated with them against this custom, was that there could be no harm in killing and eating the man who would do the same by them if it was in his power. For, said they, can there be any harm in eating our enemies whom we have killed in battle? Would not those very enemies have done the same for us? I have often seen them listen to Topia with great attention, but I never found his arguments have any weight with them, or that with all his rhetoric 
he could persuade any one of them that this custom was wrong. And when Odidi and several of our people showed their abhorrence of it, they only laughed at them. Among many reasons which I have heard assigned for the prevalence of this horrid custom, the want of animal food has been one. But how far this is deducible, either from facts or circumstances, I shall leave those to find out who advanced it. In every part of New Zealand where I have been, fish was in such plenty that the natives generally caught as much as served both themselves and us. They have also plenty of dogs, nor is there any want of wild fowl which they know very well how to kill, so that neither this nor the want of food of any kind can in my opinion be the reason. But whatever it may be, I think it was but too evident that they have a great liking for this kind of food. I must here observe that Odi soon learnt to converse with these people, as I am persuaded he would have done with the people of Amsterdam, had he been a little longer with them, for he did not understand the New Zealanders at first any more or not so much as he understood the people of Amsterdam. At four o'clock in the morning on the twenty-fourth, we unmoored with an intent to put to sea, but the wind being at north and northeast without, and blowing strong puffs into the cove, made it necessary for us to lie fast. While we were unmooring, some of our old friends came on board to take their leave of us, and afterwards left the cove with all their effects. But those who had been out on the late expedition remained, and some of the gentlemen having visited them, found the heart still sticking on the canoe, and the intestines lying on the beach, but the liver and lungs were now wanting. Probably they had eaten them, after the carcass was all gone. On the twenty-fifth early in the morning we weighed, with a small breeze out of the cove, which carried us no farther than between Motuara and Long Island, where we were obliged to anchor. But presently, after a breeze springing up at north, we weighed again, turned out of the sound, and stood over for Cape Terawite. During our stay in the sound we were plentifully supplied with fish, procured from the natives at a very easy rate, and besides the vegetables our own gardens afforded, we found everywhere plenty of scurvy grass and celery, which I caused to be dressed every day for all hands. By this means they had been mostly on a fresh diet for the three preceding months, and at this time we had neither a sick nor scorbutic man on board. It is necessary to mention, for the information of others, that we had now some pork on board, salted at Ulitea, and as good as any I ever ate. The manner in which we cured it was this. In the cool of the evening the hogs were killed, dressed, cut up, the bones cut out, and the flesh salted while it was yet hot. The next morning we gave it a second salting, packed it into a cask, and put to it a sufficient quantity of strong pickle. Great care is to be taken that the meat be well covered with pickle, otherwise it will soon spoil. The morning before we sailed I wrote a memorandum, setting forth the time we last arrived, the day we sailed, the route I intended to take, 
and such other information as I thought necessary for Captain Furneaux, in case he should put into the sound, and buried it in a bottle, under the root of a tree in the garden, which is in the bottom of the cove, in such a manner as must be found by him, or any other European who might put into the cove. I, however, had little reason to hope it would fall into the hands of the person for whom it was intended, thinking hardly possible that the adventure could be in any port in New Zealand, as we had not heard of her all this time. Nevertheless, I was resolved not to leave the coast without looking for her, where I thought it most likely for her to be. It was with this view that I stood over for Cape Terawite, and afterwards ran along shore from point to point to Cape Palliser, firing guns every half-hour, but all to no effect. At eight o'clock we brought two for the night, Cape Palliser bearing south-east by east distant three leagues, in which situation we had fifty fathoms water. I had now an opportunity of making the following remarks on the coast between Cape Terawite and Cape Palliser. The bay which lies on the west side of the last cape does not appear to run so far inland to the northward as I at first thought, the deception being caused by the land in the bottom of it being low. It is, however, at least five leagues deep and full as wide at the entrance, though it seems to be exposed to southerly and southwesterly winds it is probable there may be places in the bottom of it sheltered even from these the bay or inlet on the east side of cape terawite before which we anchored lies in north inclining to the west and seemed to be sheltered from all winds the middle cape or point of land that disjoins these two bays rises to a considerable height especially inland for close to the sea is a skirt of low land off which lie some pointed rocks but so near to the shore as to be no ways dangerous indeed the navigation of this side of the strait seems much safer than the other because the tides here are not near so strong cape terawite and cape palliser lie in the direction of north sixty nine degrees west and south sixty nine degrees east from each other distant ten leagues the cape which disjoins the two bays above mentioned lies within or north of this direction all the land near the coast between and about these capes is exceedingly barren probably owing to its being so much exposed to the cold southerly winds from cape terawite to the two brothers which lie off cape kaumuru the course is nearly north-west by west distant sixteen miles north of cape terawite between it and entry island is an island lying pretty near the shore i judged this to be an island when i saw it in my former voyage but not being certain left it undetermined in my chart of the strait which is the reason of my taking notice of it now as also of the bays etc above mentioned at daylight in the morning on the twenty sixth we made sail round cape palliser firing guns as usual as we ran along the shore in this manner we proceeded till we were three or four leagues to the northeast of the cape when the wind shifted to northeast we bore away for cape campbell on the other side of the strait soon after 
seeing a smoke ascend at some distance inland away to the northeast we hauled the wind and continued to ply till six o'clock in the evening which was several hours after the smoke disappeared and left us not the least signs of people every one being unanimously of opinion that the adventure could neither be stranded on the coast nor be in any of the harbours thereof i gave up looking for her and all thoughts of seeing her any more during the voyage as no rendezvous was absolutely fixed upon after leaving new zealand nevertheless this did not discourage me from fully exploring the southern parts of the pacific ocean in the doing of which i intended to employ the whole of the ensuing season on our quitting the coast and consequently all hopes of being joined by our consort i had the satisfaction to find that not a man was dejected or thought the dangers we had yet to go through were in the least increased by being alone but as cheerfully proceeding to the south or wherever i may think proper to lead them as if the adventure or even more ships had been in our company end of book two chapter five recording by david cole medway massachusetts